mentioned up to this point, there's, I think, I'll say at least four dimensions, four different lenses on how to look at what the meaning is in regards to the blood of the covenant. And the reason why this is so important is because in every record that we have regarding Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper, he speaks in terms of the fruit of the vine and offering the cup and says that you would take this and drink it for this is the blood of the covenant or the my blood of the covenant or the new covenant in my blood, depending upon uh, which place in the scriptures you are at. And so trying to get a better feel and a deeper understanding about what this means, uh, I, I think can really provide a, a great richness and depth for us as we uh, come to the table each and every week and we can help us not be uh, something that becomes uh, ritualistic or something that we hurry through, but can really uh, take the time to focus on what this is talking about. So uh, tonight you have your copies of God's word. I want to be in Hebrews 9. We're going to spend our time in Hebrews chapter 9. In Hebrews 9, what we looked at from Exodus 24 two weeks ago is quoted for us here. And so how the writer of Hebrews applies how the blood of the covenant was used in the days of Moses, I think, is is extremely helpful to us. And uh, this will then certainly, when we get through this picture, we're going to see uh, truly an amazing picture of the hope that we have in Christ. You'll notice in Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 19, the writer of Hebrews says there, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses, to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. So uh, you have a reminder here of what we saw in Exodus 24 a couple of weeks ago where you have God coming into a covenant relationship with with his people. Half of the blood was taken. It is thrown against the altar, which is at the base of the mountain, representing God's end of the covenant. The rest of the blood Moses is holding and the people are saying, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And then he takes that blood and he throws it on the people and he says, this is the blood of the covenant. And the writer of Hebrews is referencing that moment right here and saying, that's what happened in the days of Moses and now is bringing it forward and talking about it in regards to the meaning for the people of God, for Christians, and what this is about in regards to Christ's covenant. So what we need to do then is rather than jumping in the middle like this, we're going to have to pull back out and back up a few verses and get a sense of what Hebrews 9 is talking about. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 11, you'll notice the very first word is but. So we're jumping in, but those first 10 verses of chapter 9, if you scan your eyes over that, is a reminder of the description of the tabernacle and the various elements of it and the, what the priests would do in regards to the sacrifices that were made in that tabernacle because chapter 9 is going to set up a contrast between not only the priesthood but also the covenant. And so he reminds them in these first 10 verses 
Here's the way it was in the tabernacle with its worship, with its regulations, with its high priest, with all of the offerings that were going on. But he tells us now in verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. The the beginning point here is, is truly amazing is that you have this statement that, so in the past you had blood of animals, the bulls and goats, and you can imagine the, the constancy of that sacrifice system. It is probably really hard for us to get our minds around that we sometimes only think of like the Day of Atonement, which was once a year. But sacrifices were daily and weekly and monthly and yearly. There were constant sacrifices going on. Remember, when you sinned, you were supposed to bring an offering. That probably kept people busy. I mean, you just think about what that would take in terms of being in this sacrificial system before God. And then you have this picture that goes, but when Christ came, there is a major contrast. He is entering a greater, more perfect tent, the greater tabernacle, the heavenly one, not made with hands. He enters into it, not with his own blood, as you would perceive and think about in the tabernacle system where the priests would be carrying the animal blood and bringing it into that tabernacle so that the offering could be made. But rather the writer of Hebrews gives a visual of Christ walking into a heavenly tabernacle carrying his own blood. That is a fascinating visual of Christ walking in with his own blood. Why is he doing this? Verse 12 He is securing our eternal redemption. He is accomplishing something that couldn't be accomplished before. And that's what we're spending our time looking at is he's going to describe what is Jesus accomplishing that couldn't be accomplished before. Look at verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? All right, that is a very dense sentence that has some really important pictures for us. I want you to notice that he points out what you had in the Old Testament sacrificial system was a purification was happening. They would go and they would bring their offerings and you would have things that were clean, things that were unclean, and you needed blood to purify. That was one of the big concepts of that sacrifice system is if something's going to be made holy, if it's going to be ready to be put into service before God, blood is what is necessary. Blood purifies. And he makes the point in verse 13 that That blood of animals had purification, but it was only able to deal with the purification of the flesh or ceremonial laws or those outward defilements. And that's what you read about when you're 
in your Bible reading plan and it won't be long. You'll be in Leviticus and you'll be like, oh my, wow, look at this is really deep. And all the details of all the different things of the sacrifices that need to be accomplished and who needs to do it and how it all needs to be done. And even with all that specificity and detail, here is the writer of Hebrews saying, but it only could accomplish so much. It only could cleanse outwardly. It could only cleanse the outside defilements. And a question that is posed in verse 14. So if the blood of animals could deal with the external defilements, what kind of purification do you think Christ's blood can accomplish? That's the hanging question he has in his, in his mind to his readers is if you see these defilements and, 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 and sins being dealt with on an external level with the animal blood, then how much more do you believe could be accomplished with the blood of Christ? In fact, I want you to notice the wording there that he uses that verse 14 doesn't just merely say, now how much more will the blood of Christ purify us? But listen to carefully. Verse 14. Purify our conscience from dead works to serve a living God. Isn't that an interesting point that he makes? He doesn't just simply go, okay, animal blood, external, but blood of Christ, sins forgiven, period. Which is sometimes how we summarize it. But he's saying more. He's talking about the conscience. He's talking about the inside. He's talking about our very being and saying, actually, the blood of Christ is able to purify our conscience from dead works so that we can serve a living God. Now, I'm going to have to move around a little bit in Acts because of the way the the author of Hebrews makes this point. But jump down to chapter 10 because he's going to explain in chapter 10 Why animal blood doesn't work and why this needs to happen. Chapter 10, verse 1. Since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those Who draw near. So, first picture given to us the law cannot accomplish what we need. It is unable to fulfill a complete purification. It purifies the external, the defilements, but it can't go to perfecting all the way inside and out. So, verse 2, he makes the point. Otherwise, would they have not ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed would no longer have a consciousness of sins? Two things he's observing there. One, if those sacrifices perfected us inside out, we could have stopped. Animal sacrifice, we're good, we're done. But there is something being communicated by God with the repetition. And the repetition is the insufficiency. You had to keep having more sacrifices day after day and year after year. There constantly needed to be more sacrifices that need to be made. Now, notice why he says this in verse in verse two. He says there, if it had, if it would they not have been ceased to be offered since the worshipers having once been cleansed 
would no longer have any consciousness of sins. Notice he says, if those sacrifices were doing their job rightly, you wouldn't have a consciousness of those sins anymore. Rather, what keeps happening is as you come back to the sacrifice and come back to the altar, you are being perpetually reminded of all of your sins. And that's what he drives at there in verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. Well, reminder to who? Well, verse 2, he's talking about the worshipers. The worshipers have to keep doing this over and over and over again. That's hard for us to fathom because we don't do this. But imagine every single day dealing with your sin. Every single day, another animal. Every single year, the Day of Atonement. Over and over again, sacrifices keep happening. And as it keeps happening, you'll just keep remembering all the sins you've committed. And he's saying that was the problem. Because in verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so he's giving us a picture here as you come back to chapter 9 and verse 14. Notice what he's saying the blood of Christ is able to do. The blood of Christ is able to purify our conscience from dead works. It is able to change inside out. It's supposed to go to the very heart. And it's not just simply what something clean, unclean, defiled, undefiled but truly to the heart and the problem and the impact of sin. The blood of Christ was needed to show the depth and the impact of what sin does. It goes down to the very very core. And the writer of Hebrews then is making this, this point about how the blood of Christ is able to accomplish this. Now, here's what I want us to know in what is being put together. The blood of animals caused the worshipers to constantly remember their sins because the sacrifices kept happening and kept happening and kept happening. But Christ has come with his own blood and through a single sacrifice is able to purify the conscience from dead works, which the whole point is to get across. This is forgiving your sins Completely. In fact, it's forgiving your sins completely to such a degree that he is saying your conscience is supposed to be purified. I want us to kind of settle on that idea for a minute. Because how often as the people of God, what do we do? Except in our own minds and in our own hearts and in our own consciences drag back up all the things of the past. And he's making the point, that's what the law system did. Under the old covenant, that's exactly what was going on. Every time you kept bringing up another offering, that was saying to you, I've still got a sin problem before God. But here he says, there is something amazing about what the blood of Christ is able to accomplish. It is able to purify our conscience from dead works so that we are enabled to serve a living God. You are given a picture here that through Christ, we are seeing that his blood is so sufficient. It is so complete. It is so cleansing 
that those sins are dealt with and they are gone. Not to be brought up again. Unlike the prior system where it was brought up year after year with the constant sacrifices. Now, I want to push forward because I want you to see what what he, he does with this. Then we'll bring it back around at the end. But look at verse 15 now. Because that's not the full picture. Verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. So that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred. That redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. I want us to see that there's a very important second picture. The first picture is talking about what does blood accomplish? And the big picture is there is a purification that happens. And the blood of animals could only purify so far. It could only get to the external. But the blood of Christ is able to purify all the way down into the conscience. And then he moves a little bit further in verse 15 and says, Now what is accomplished in the death of Christ? What is being done there? And I want you to notice that he describes Christ in verse 15 as a mediator of a new covenant. And he shows the point in verse 16 by saying, The only way for a new will to be put into effect is through death. Very simple image that we understand. Probably most people in the room, if you have somebody who's dependent upon you, you have a will, your last will and testament. And it states everything that's supposed to happen when you pass away. But when does your will take effect? It cannot take effect until your death. Until then, it may exist, but it has no power. It has no bearing. It has no meaning. It's just there. But once a death occurs, then it is put into force. And that is the argument that is being made here. Jesus had to die to be able to put a new covenant into effect. In fact, he makes the point, even the first covenant required death. Even the first required blood. And that was what we saw in Exodus 24. As God is entering into the covenant, there is a a, a death of all kinds of animals to be able to affect this relationship and put them into covenant. But to have a new covenant, the one who made that covenant then had to die. And that's what verse 15 states. But I want you to carefully appreciate what is stated here in verse 15. I want you to notice the effects of this covenant. Verse 15, carefully read. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Why? What is that supposed to do? Why is this so important? Verse 15, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. The writer of Hebrews is saying there was only one way. For people to receive what had been promised for an eternal inheritance. And that first covenant wasn't going to do it. And the blood of animals wasn't going to accomplish it. And all of those sacrifices couldn't achieve it. But Jesus giving his life puts this new covenant in effect. 
And that covenant, he says, makes it possible for those who are called. All right. Are you called for those who are called to receive the promised eternal inheritance? Now, keep going. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Here is this picture of in this new covenant. Now you are able to have life. Now you are able to have eternity with God. Now everything that God has ever promised in regards to his people now and in the future are able to be received by them. That wasn't possible before. And oh, how the Old Testament does so well to show that. Everybody keeps falling short. It doesn't matter how good they are, how great they seem. There is always failure. There is always problem. And God is trying to show this covenant won't work. A covenant that says to you, do all that is written in the book of the law and you will have life. Now go. As much as the people all stood up in in, in Exodus 24 and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Give them five minutes. Because Moses is going to go back on the mountain right after that. And they're going to have a golden calf out there. And they're going to be committing all kinds of sins. I mean, they just said, we will do everything that you said. And God's like, and this proves the point. You're not. And this covenant won't work. There needs to be a new covenant to make it possible To be able to secure our redemption. To make it possible for us. And I hope that we'll see that the writer of Hebrews is truly showing something important. The only price that is high enough to be able to accomplish this redemption is his blood. Redemption is about buying people back. That's what we talked about last week, being set free. A price needs to be paid to set us free from our sins. Animal blood doesn't pay the price. And so what's being put forward is there needs to be blood, but not the blood of animals. There needs to be a death, but not the death of animals. There needs to be the blood and the death of the Holy One. And God is showing us that is the only price that's going to work to be able to set us free from our sins, to be able to purify our conscience and to be able to move us into a new covenant so that we can receive the promised eternal inheritance. So the imagery that is being given to us in this picture is that blood is required for purification. And then he says, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Look at verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything was purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Blood is necessary for purification. Death is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. Christ's blood is the only option that can be given. All right, now I'm going to pull in a couple of passages from Hebrews and then try to pull this dimension together for us. Listen to where he, he goes forward, and I think he summarizes this concept so well in Hebrews ten fourteen. For by a single offering, 
He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Just just soak that sentence. By his one offering, he is able to fully accomplish everything we need. Those who are being sanctified and the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. And then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Are your sins completely gone? Yes. The blood of Christ is able to cleanse to the inside and out. If animal blood could deal with the outside, the blood of Christ can work inside out. And notice how he makes this point at the end in verse 18. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. All right, let's take that backward. Are we doing a bunch of offerings for sins? Then that means we're forgiven. That's what he just said. Where there's the forgiveness of these things, then we don't need more sacrifices. The single sacrifice means we come before God and go, we've been made clean. Purification has happened. Purification from dead works, purification down to the core so that we can now serve a living God. And so this is the third dimension that I want to give you, this third picture of the blood of the covenant. When you partake and you hold the cup and Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This is my blood of the covenant. One of the things we are remembering is that we are forgiven completely. That is how the writer of Hebrews applies Exodus 24. And says, you have a superior sacrifice with superior blood that is able to accomplish superior purification so that you can stand before God absolutely clean. Listen to Hebrews 10 again. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. Catch the line and catch the imagery of Exodus 24. With our hearts sprinkled clean from what? An evil conscience. His blood is able to cleanse even the deepest, darkest conscience. It can go down to the core and cleanse. Parenthesis, side point. And you've experienced it, and you know other people who started off with a whole baggage of darkness, and it's being purified. And it's being cleansed and it's being changed and it's being transformed so that you can serve a living God redeemed from dead works. And number two, the line right before 
Because we have the blood of Jesus, who has gone through the curtain, and since we have this great high priest, and since our hearts have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, you can draw near to God in full assurance of faith. You can come near to God. The whole picture of Exodus 24, first one back in chapter 19, no one can come near. And then suddenly after the blood of the covenant, remember we saw everybody sitting on the mountain, we're eating and drinking, they saw God and they're having that meal. Here is this beautiful picture. The blood of the covenant means you're completely forgiven and cleansed all the way through. And the blood of the covenant, when you're taking the cup, reminds us you can boldly access God. The blood of the covenant makes it possible. This blood shed by Christ puts us into this new covenant, which staggeringly, I mean staggeringly means you can walk into the presence of God. I don't understand that picture. I would expect the scriptures to say, yeah, you're cleansed, but God is God. And we have no right to stand in the presence of God. But earlier in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, he's going to say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Nobody did that in the past. Nobody went walking into the most holy place and they were just lollygagging along like, yeah, let's just walk in here and check things out. Let's just come in here and see God. Nobody did that. We have stories of as later years went on that they would tie a rope to the foot of the high priest on the day of atonement so they would know if he made it or not. And now here's this picture. Because of the blood of Christ that established this covenant, let us boldly and confidently walk into the throne room of God and get what? Mercy. Mercy and grace to help in our time of need. The cup, when we partake, reminds us it is because of Christ we can be purified all the way down to the core. And it allows us to walk into the very presence of God and say, God, forgive me. I need mercy. I need your grace and I need you to help in this time of need. Let me conclude by pulling our three dimensions together to remind us where we've been. Number one, we belong to a new covenant sealed in Christ's blood. And we are committing ourselves to the covenant saying all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We will follow him. We will approach him as the writer of Hebrews said with a true heart. Number two, We've been set free. We talked about last week. You are not doomed to stay in the life of sin. The blood of the covenant means that he has set the prisoners free and you are able to have a new life. And that's been established because of Christ and his covenant. And finally, then tonight, friends, we have been completely, completely forgiven. When you go to God and you ask for forgiveness, then all of the past is erased. 
And those sins are not remembered anymore. That was the promise God made through Jeremiah. He's telling them there are going to be a day. There's going to be a time where I will not remember their sins anymore. Do you believe it? Do you believe that God completely wipes those sins away? That's what's supposed to cleanse our conscience. Our knowledge that God has taken care of it. It's gone. It's off the ledger. It's erased. And that frees us from those dead works to serve a living God. That's the hope of the blood of the covenant. And that's why in verse 15, the writer of Hebrews says, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. It's possible because of his complete purification. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, it is staggering to think that we can stand before you completely clean and without blemish. And yet that's exactly what you promised. And Lord, that's exactly what you said you would do through the blood of your son. And Lord, we thank you for the power and the strength of the blood of your son that cleanses us, that cleanses our hearts, and that cuts us simply all the way down to the core. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you for putting us into a covenant that allows us to enjoy the eternal inheritance that lays before us. And so, Lord, I pray that this would give us the encouragement for the times that we fail and for the times that we sin to confidently come into your throne room because you have said, because of your son, we can find mercy and grace in our time of need. Lord, thank you for the blood of the covenant. And may we never forget the great impact and amazing effect of what the death of your son means to us and means to the whole world. And so, Lord, may we live in this new light and may we live a life that is new and that is devoted to you because you have bought us with the precious blood of your son. So thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. It is a staggering picture. And I submit to you, this is a picture that requires faith. You know what's easy for us to do? What's easy for us to do is to say, well, yeah, but you don't understand how bad my sins are. You don't understand how many my sins are. You don't understand what I've done. And I hope you are hearing what the writer of Hebrews is saying. His blood is able to fully cleanse. There is nothing that cannot be forgiven by the blood of Christ if you will come to him. If you will turn back to him. 
if you will give your life to him, it is never too late to move forward with Christ. And that is the hope of this lesson. The hope of the writer of Hebrews is to see the power of what Christ's blood is able to accomplish in your life. Can we help you in any way tonight to turn away from sin, to be immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, to start that walk with him? And to those who have already done that, sometimes the question comes up, well, how now how can I be cleansed? You have to love what the scriptures remind us. Go boldly into the throne room of God. Confess your sins. Seek forgiveness. And he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Can we help you tonight? Won't you come while we stand and while we sing?